And um, the perfect sentence is between 18 and 25 words. This sentence is about 90. So we're just going to work through it together. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. So short. It's so short. <laughs> so there's a word uh, in that long sentence. By the way, in the Greek, there would have been no punctuation anyway. So it just would be just run on, completely run on. There's a word in that sentence that those of you who have been with us over the last four weeks um, should see that word and it should have made your heart leap just a little bit. It's one of the last words, and it's the word joy. Because over the last four weeks, what we've been talking about is laments, and the fact that it is a recognition that it, lament is the language that God gives us in order to deal with the brokenness and the despair that is present in the world. And that through lament, we're able to call out to God in recognition of the honesty of what's happening around us in our personal lives or in a broad sense in the world today. And it gives us the ability to engage it at a level that draws us to trust the Father, God, who loves us, to have hope that there is something beyond this. And then it leads us to action by justice, bringing about good things where there is brokenness, wholeness and completeness where things have fallen down. But when we've talked about lament, we've recognized that that means anger, and that means uh, uh, crying out, and that means sadness, and that means despair. And we don't want to stop acknowledging that and saying that, that we don't experience that. But as we read these four verses, what we see is a word that jumps out to us that is joy. So answer me this. Rhetorically, of course. What brings you joy? Is it having a relationship with that special someone that you thought you would never have and then all of a sudden you have this feeling that you can't quite describe? We all know that that's actually just you not thinking clearly but, and not recognizing all the bad things that are probably in that person's life. Is it a really good dessert? That, oh, am I just talking to myself? A really good dessert that you have that brings you joy. For instance, when I first had sticky date pudding, when we moved here, I thought, well, there cannot be anything better than this. There is, but sticky date pudding is pretty close to joy. Or, or, or is it the birth of a child or... It, is it a promotion or is it the fact that you got up this morning and the sun was shining and you got to come to church? I would dare say that our, our idea of joy 
often resides in the circumstances of our life. Something that hits us or something that happens, and we go, yeah, that bring me joy. But what we're going to see in this passage is that actually is not what John is talking about here. That's not the type of joy. Yes, we've experienced happiness or we've experienced pleasure or we've experienced some sense of completeness in it. But that's not the joy that John is talking about here. John is digging deep when he says that word joy. He he is bringing us to a place that is not tied to any circumstance that we'll experience. And, And that's the reason why joy actually lines up really well with lament. Because at the end of lament, at the end of trust, at the end of hope, at the end of seeking justice, there can be joy. But that joy also is with us during all of those other places. Because this is a joy that's not based on the circumstances in which we live in. This is a joy that is embodied in us. And John here is saying, we've written these things so that our joy may be complete. So let's talk about that word, our, just for a minute. Because often what will happen is we'll see that word and we'll go, our. So he's talking about himself and those that are around him, or those that have written scripture, or those that have written the Bible. But there are places where this has been translated or seen as also your joy. Because it's a word that can kind of go back and forth that way. So he's saying, we've written this so that your joy may be complete. So to the receivers of this letter, to those who are reading it, that would be us today. I've written these things so that your joy may be complete. And so when we see that word, our, or your, what we should recognize is that it is both ends. (laughs) It's not either or. It is saying that by writing this, our joy is complete. By you receiving it, it will help your joy be complete. So that we are together in having our joy complete. But what is it that makes our joy complete? What is that thing? Well, John is very cheeky at the beginning. Because he says, that which. Not him. Or the one or as he does in his gospel, the word, he says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, who is John talking about here? Who is he speaking of? That which was from the beginning. He's talking to us about Jesus Christ. He's letting us know that he is again, going back to John 1.1, the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. You see, John is coming to us and saying, how joy gets made complete is the first thing we need to recognize is Jesus and recognize who he is. So who is Jesus? Who is he saying that he is in this passage? All of us have different views of Jesus. All of us bring with us, when we encounter this man, Jesus, we bring something with us. 
Some folks encounter that Jesus and they strictly want to understand him as a historic being. Someone who was here and someone who's died and is no longer present. Someone who maybe was on the earth and lived a certain life. And there's lots of other stories that got added in about who he is and what he did. But he's dead now. But in some way or form or fashion, he's influenced a lot of life. So he must have been a pretty good teacher or a great guy or something. So that, that's who Jesus is. I, I was lucky enough to have grown up hearing that Jesus was more than that. That he was God come in flesh to be present, to change our lives. But, but sadly, because I didn't probably listen clearly, Jesus was something that I needed to attain. Jesus was something that I needed to grab a hold of. And that if I had an understanding of who Jesus was, then life would be okay. So really, it was just trying to take Jesus and fit Jesus into my life in the way that I lived. And so there were certain things that I didn't want Jesus to see, and there were definitely things that I wanted to make sure Jesus knew all about. Right? So those good things, Jesus, Jesus, and those bad things, I don't want Jesus to see that. And then there are those that today would see Jesus as a myth, as someone who didn't exist. Someone that was just a great story for those who need a little help to get by in this troubled world. And so as we come to who Jesus is, if we want our joy to be made complete, we have to recognize who, who John is talking about here. And so John is saying, this is the Jesus that we're talking about. He is the one who is eternal. The one who has always been. The one who is present with and in God. The one who is eternal. That's why he says, that which was from the beginning beyond all things, who is eternal. He goes on to talk about how it brings eternal life, the eternal life, the one who is there. When we sang that song at the end as a response during our laments, um, you are good and all you do is good, there's a beautiful line in there that says this. It's at the very end. It says, your life is eternal, not in measure, but kind. Because we live in flesh and blood and we don't necessarily take time to recognize the grandeur and majesty of God, when we think of eternal, we think of point A to like just continuous, ongoing. But at some place we say eternity had a beginning point because we think of a linear timeline. When John is saying eternal, he's saying before. There, there is no beginning, there is no end. It always was. So it's not about a measure. It is about the fact that he is eternal. All of you should be going... We, we don't have the capacity to even hold it within our minds in our hearts to know well, what does that mean that before there was there was you and beyond the end you will always be 
And so what John is saying is that if you want your joy to be made complete, you have to recognize Jesus as the one who is eternal. That is God, as as Paul reminds us, that in Christ, all of who God was made known. And that's where John leads us to the second thing that we recognize about Jesus. Not only is he God, eternal, but that he became man and was made flesh. That's the reason why he says these things. That which was in the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. See, one of the things that John was addressing here was this heresy, this uh, disagreement with what the gospel was, this sort of taking what the gospel was and changing it in a way that didn't lead you back to Christ, but to something false. It had a word called Gnosticism. And it was the idea that, yes, Jesus was God, but that earthly, when he was here, he wasn't really quite flesh and blood. He was sort of this spirit man that was here but really wasn't here. And what that led to was an understanding of the material world that brought about two reactions. One of the reactions is an idea that we can't have anything or do anything uh, or, or be a part of anything that's material. Right? So we need to beat our bodies into submission. We need to get ourselves to, to be free of our flesh, to be free of our bodies, so that everything about our physical nature was evil and only things that are spiritual are pure. And, and what that caused people to do is neglect the physical. And so you might see something physically hurting someone, but you would say, yeah, that's not that important. As a matter of fact, it's not even real. Let's deal with the deep down spiritual issues that are dealing. Think if, if, if we had stayed at that place, we wouldn't need doctors. But we do need doctors. Why? Because God created us both physical and spiritual. We are flesh and we are those that are indwelled by the Spirit given a soul by God. So so the first reaction is to say all of matter is bad. So those things that we talked about that might bring you joy, we would never think that they would bring us joy. As a matter of fact, if we felt joy from something like that, if it gained us some happiness, we would feel that that was sin. Now the other thing that would happen with this sort of understanding is that if the flesh is bad and it's not part of the spirit, but the spirit is good, then I can do anything in my flesh because it doesn't affect the goodness of the spirit. Uh, many of you are thinking, I know where Lee would run. Uh, we would go, and so basically what would happen is you would go, I can party, I can do whatever I want, evil with my body, I can act, because I've got this spiritual relationship with God. So as long as this is all right, as long as I'm good in the spirit, then I'm okay to do whatever bad thing I want with the body. Because it's not bad. Because it's already bad. And it doesn't matter. And of course, those were just in the old days. Those, those are just back ancient days. Because none of us operate or think that way now. 
well, as long as I pray and I go to service and I do these things, I, I have this relationship with God that he sees me doing these things, then I'll be all right. Yeah, even though I screw up over here. Or, or we see pain in the world and we go, yeah, but really God wants me to be about his gospel about him saving us. And we neglect the fact that he's called us to be mercy to those who need mercy. Because it's just the world. And so that's what John's dealing with here. And so he says, I want to be clear, God is eternal, that Christ is eternal, that he is bond, but he has also come in flesh and blood, that I heard him speak, that I saw him with my eyes. Not only did I see him from a distance with my eyes, I looked upon him, I investigated who he was, and then I touched him. John, who was known as the beloved disciple, the one who was resting his head upon Christ. When he writes those words, and I touched him, perhaps he can still feel his ear resting on his chest, hearing the heartbeat of the almighty, eternal God busting through the flesh. See, John very clearly says, I want you to realize that if you want your joy to be made complete, you recognize that the eternal incarnate God was present. And that he experienced everything in the flesh that you have experienced. That he resided fully in that place to know what humanity is going through and how it is to live. And in doing that, he sought God. So then he goes on and he says, this life was made manifest. There's a great thing here that happens. There's some disagreement among people who read this passage about what he's really talking about. Is he just talking about Jesus, the incarnate God? Is he just talking about, since he says, which was made and doesn't say he that was. Maybe he's just talking about the message of Jesus. But when he says that life was made manifest. Manifest means be made present. What, Paul, what John does here is he moves us away from the incarnation and he brings us to the resurrection. See, we saw with our own hands concerning the word of life, the life, what kind of life, this eternal life, that life that was made manifest to us, of which we testify and seen and testify and proclaim to you, right? It was made manifest. That which we have seen and heard, we now proclaim to you. So not only do we know the eternal God, not only do we know the God who is incarnate, but we also recognize the risen eternal God. The one who has conquered death. This eternal life, the life that was made manifest, happens at the resurrection. Now Jesus, while he's walking along on the earth in flesh, he's able to heal and bring people back to life. God is able to bring people back to life. But at the resurrection, 
Everything changes. Because at the cross and at the resurrection, death is put down permanently for those who are in Christ. Death is done away with. Yes, we'll die a physical death. And yes, I'm not just talking about a spiritual life forever. What I'm saying is that death no longer has its sting. Death no longer has mastery. And that is what is manifest. So John is saying it's the eternal God who has made flesh, who is resurrected. That's the reason why it's so important for us to believe that that's not just an analogy, but a real thing that happened historically. That it holds to the fact that death has been defeated. Because if death is not defeated, then what's the point? If Christ didn't come as God made man to say, I will not let this brokenness stand, but in my resurrection, I will make it dead itself so that life will reign. Our joy cannot be complete if we just take the resurrection as analogy. It will fall short. Because analogies never go as far as you need them to go. Ask any good preacher. Every time we try to use an analogy, it doesn't really get to the point that we're trying to say. It falls short. It has to be real. And so he says it was made manifest, but it leads us to do something, he says. It leads us to what? We proclaim it to you. We testify to you. And why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. John says this, if we're going to have our joy made complete, then we recognize the eternal God, we recognize that He became flesh, we recognize that He is risen, and we recognize that He lives in community, in fellowship, in trinity. And not only that, He invites us in to that trinity. John is saying, I want to gather you into fellowship. And I'm doing this by telling you who Christ is. And not only that, are you going to join me in this fellowship, but you get to join God and Christ in fellowship. It's a great Greek word. It's called koinonia. And it means so much more than what we get when we say fellowship. When you hear the word fellowship, what pops into your mind first. For me, it's dinner. Of course, that's about any word I hear. But it was fellowship dinners. That's what they were called. And everybody would bring their food, and it would be after church usually, and you would have fellowship with one another. Which really meant, when I was younger, how can I scoot through the number of people who are in my way to get to the front of the line to be able to get the good food and the most desserts? As I got a little older, I recognized that people were staring at me 
So when I was 22, I decided that was bad. All right, I was a little bit younger than that. And so I began to, you know, stand and wait. I never stood with my mom and dad because they always went last. So I tried to find somebody else to talk to. And we had fellowship because I was talking to them while we were getting ready to get food or using them, one of the two. And we begin to think of fellowship in that way of, well, it's just getting to know someone or it's having dinner with someone. It's shaking hands during greeting time. We've had fellowship. That word is so much more. It means an intimate knowledge of one another, a giving of one another. It means to have all things in common. And when we hear that, we go, well, I don't want to have all my things in common with people. Rightfully so. We're not talking material possessions. When we say we want all things in common, it's the commonality which draws us together, the common thing that holds us together. And what is that common thing? It's Christ. That is the thing that holds us together. It's that we can sit here and have all sorts of identities and all sorts of places where we find meaning, and all, but above and beyond all of those things is that Christ, the eternal, incarnate, resurrected expression of the Trinity is our Lord and our God. That that's the thing that holds us completely together. That's the thing that causes us to go, I don't know that I necessarily dig this person out in the world, but because they are one with Christ and I am one with Christ, they are someone I can't get enough of. And not only can I not get enough of them, I hope that they can't get enough of me. And that we're going to help one another and we're going to celebrate with one another and we're going to lament with one another and we're going to walk together and we're not just going to let them go down a track that's going to lead them to a path of destruction, but I will take the time to pursue them and say, what's happening in your life? That this fellowship is something uh, that I call intrusive in nature. It doesn't rest on the fact that I'll get to see you next Sunday or we'll get to eat a meal together. But says there are people that God has put in my sphere, in my life, that I must be engaged with at a much deeper level. Not because of anything that I can do, but because they've put me, because God enables me to be put in that place. Look, that's one of the reasons why we have Bible studies. Because it's really easy for us to think that we're getting good fellowship together when we're having tea and we're never doing away with tea. Don't worry, it's a great thing and we should have it. And there's great fellowship that does happen during tea time. But we're never going to get to the place of knowing each other's hearts, understanding each other's hearts, desiring each other's hearts if we just shake hands on Sunday mornings and grab a cuppa afterwards. And so if we want our joy to be made complete, we have to live lives in one another. But we can't do that by ourselves. That's the reason why John says, I want you to have fellowship with me and our fellowship is with God and Christ. In John 15... John records to us the words of Jesus. 
And Jesus said this about Himself. I am the true vine, and My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in Me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And each branch that does not bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the Word that I have spoken to you abide, have something in common, rest, koinonia. Abide in Me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him, he is that that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches that are gathered are thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father in heaven is glorified. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Oh, John was just plagiarizing. So deeply he had he heard the heartbeat of God. That he says joy springs eternal by being and abiding in fellowship with the beautiful, eternal, incarnate, resurrected, Trinitarian God. And with each other. That's scary for us to think about. It's scary for us to think about because we know other humans, none of us here, but other humans will bring hurt in our life. We build walls that keep us from sharing what's really happening in our lives because we don't want to be hurt again. And so in doing that, we never move into complete joy. Yes, we have times of happiness, and yes, we have times where we can feel uh, uh, pleasure, but we miss the opportunity of walking a life that no matter what circumstances comes, brings great joy. And that joy doesn't express itself by dancing a jig and having a big smile on our face. That only makes us look like the joker. What joy does is it centers us in the community, in the koinonia that is God completely. And where does it reside? In His love. The love that He has given, that He has pursued us with before the foundations of the world to bring us back into relationship with Him and with ourselves and with all others and with place, with where we are. 
And as we continue to go through the book of John, you will see John take this little introduction, this very odd beginning to a book because he never says, dear so-and-so. He just jumps right in because it's that exciting to him. We're going to watch him unfold what it means to have this joy made complete by living and breathing and having our being in this beautiful God who loves us. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good and all you do is good. We thank you for coming and being incarnate, for being the resurrected God for being one that lives and breathes in community, in koinonia, in fellowship. We are thankful for you inviting us into that, for allowing us to be one with you, for having our completeness in who you are. Let us step in the joy that you have given us. Father, we ask that if any of these words that I spoke today aren't yours, that they'll burn up and go away. But if they are, that they'll take root in our hearts and that they will bring glory and honor and bear good fruit for you. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and respond by singing?